Hi, this is Jake Morecambe from Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Now, today's episode is, in fact, a repeat, a show that aired a couple of months back about renewable energy that I enjoyed making. And the reason we're playing a repeat is because for the next two weeks, it is 2SER's supporter drive. Now, 2SER is the station, the radio station where Think Sustainability is made, a community radio station in Broadway, Sydney. And because we're community, we need monetary support sometimes from our community to stay alive, which includes you. You can support the station and me and this show by jumping onto support.2scr.com and can either become a supporter for a year, and if you're an adult, that's only 80 bucks. 80 bucks may sound like a lot to you, but if you actually divide that by 12 for each month of the year, it's just over $6. That's like one iced coffee less a month. If you don't want to spend that much, you can make a tax-deductible donation of whatever amount you choose, 20 bucks, 10 bucks. And keep in mind, any donation or people who sign up as supporters during this time go into some pretty cool prize draws. Support.2scr.com is where to go, and your help means we can keep the station alive and keep delivering you more episodes of Think Sustainability. Today's episode is a show I did with Nina Copel, who was filling in for Ellen Leebeater while she was travelling overseas. So enjoy. Are there any words that exist that, like, really annoy you? Um... Like, you don't like the sound of them, or there's just some weird connotation with that word, and you just are now adverse to it? Yeah, well, like, I've always really hated the term meatballs, even though, <laughs> <laughs> even though like, it's a delicious food form. Like, I've got to... Why me- What is it about meatballs that you don't like? Like, that's not a very advertising name for a dish, right? <laughs> are there any other words? Is that the only one? Uh, there's, there's probably more. <laughs> They're all a bit bizarre. Like what? Like pimple. I don't like yeah. that word. That's a bad word. How about these words? Do you like these words? Jobs and growth. <laughs> uh... I, I feel like that's a case, though, of when there's two words separately from each other. I don't mind. But now that I hear them together, it just reminds me of of the person who said that, Malcolm Turnbull, and I'm like, oh, I don't like them together. Now it feels weird. Well, it's overdone. And I remember I was doing, I don't know if you remember this, but I was doing a show a few weeks ago and I used the words jobs and growth and you rolled your eyes <laughs> when you heard the show. And so I had to change it. Yeah, the reason I'm doing this is because I have, I want to play two, I want to play another bunch of words to you and I want to get your connotation of them as well. Okay. Renewable energy. Renewable energy. Renewable energy. Renewable energy. Because I feel like in the same way, renewable energy is a buzzword at the moment, very much like jobs and growth was a buzzword. But a lot of people don't necessarily know what meaning comes from renewable energy, neither did they know what came from jobs and growth. Yeah, it's it's lost a bit of, of meaning for me, I think. And I also, I keep thinking of what's going on in Tasmania and they're having such huge energy problems, despite the fact that they have gone so sustainable. So I don't know. It's it's kind of a confusing term. It doesn't have a clear connotation for me. Well, that's what we're trying to do today, is we're trying to look at a number of different examples of renewable energy practices around Australia and what exactly they might mean for the sustainability of our planet.
I'm Jake Morkham. I'm Nina Kopel. This is Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today, we have a couple of stories on renewables. One, looking at an island in Australia that is planning to go entirely off the grid. And two, a look at just how sustainable the Olympic Games are. But first... At the end of the day, they simply go through the seabed and just bulldozer down everything that's there. And the deep sea is one of the most unknown areas on this planet. So basically, we might destroy a part of our planet we don't know. This is Dr. Sven Teske. I'm a research principal at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the UTS. Sven is part of a research team looking at deep sea mining. Uh, we're looking about a few thousand metres. And how it could damage our ocean floors. It will be very damaging because the uh, dust will float around and will cover huge areas. And we're talking about an area we actually don't really know. Um, so we could destroy ecosystems we don't even know about. The ocean floor is rich in minerals like... Copper, rare earth, cobalt, um, lithium, basically all the metals used for uh, electronics, for mobile phones. And they'll all be swept up by something called the caterpillar. It's, it's a mechanic caterpillar which basically uh, removes either pebbles or uh, large stones or manganese stones and just put it into a, a basket basically and then they lift it up. It's a long journey down to the ocean floor for the caterpillar. But is it a trip worth taking? If we see it from the resource point of view, we actually don't need those resources right now. So to cut a long story short, you can actually transition the entire world towards 100% renewables without opening up deep sea mining. Imagine you're looking at a world map in the North Atlantic Ocean, halfway between the Caribbean and the west coast of Africa. There are 22 spots. These spots have been marked out by different deep-sea mining companies who've acquired a licence from the UN to conduct an environmental impact assessment. Essentially, they want to check out if the area's okay to start mining in. At the moment, no deep-sea mining operations are actually happening anywhere around the world. But as you just heard from Sven, we don't actually need these operations right now. And they're not going to help us get to 100% renewable energy either. So why are we planning for it? majority of the companies are actually not really interested in the resource itself. They are interested in providing technologies to do deep sea mining what's what's the logic there well the logic it's these are technology companies and they see a potential future market for those technologies these deep sea mining companies are claiming that these minerals will help us reach 100 percent renewable energy is that true no i mean the the renewable industry is taking off it requires quite a bit of resources what resources uh, besides copper and steel and silicon, also um, some rare earth metal, 
You don't need to uh, use rare earth, but it's more efficient. For example, for wind turbines, um, if you want to have more efficient permanent magnets. Permanent magnets are essentially a strong magnet, which can help facilitate a strong electric current. And they're pretty much everything we use today, from wind turbines to telephones, cars, motors, televisions. So that's a lot of rare earth. So there are companies who say that we actually want to use those rare earth for permanent magnets, and we would like to source this um, resource out of deep sea mining. But in reality, you have many different options to use rare earth. Using minerals that make up old permanent magnets like iron, nickel and cobalt, Sven says could be used instead of rare earth. Just that these batteries wouldn't be as powerful. Some researchers are working on making synthetic rare earth substitutes that could work in the future, so that could save us from opening up mines in the deep sea at all. But Sven believes the answer isn't in thinking about what minerals we need next to generate power. The answer is creating a renewables culture. Solar panels, for example, last for around 20 to 30 years. After that, you can recycle those solar panels and get all the resources out. Almost the entire module uh, can be recycled. What are they made out of? Um, solar panels usually uh, out of silicon. Um, silver is required for the contacts. Glass, which is again sort of silicon, and some metals. Um, and uh, you can actually recycle most of it. How about wind turbines? Wind turbines, um, one large wind turbine uh, uses around 400 tons of steel, concrete, all kinds of metals, and copper. And uh, copper, but copper is used uh, for all power generation equipment. Simply, it's part of the generator, and you need copper for that. So, um, you also need copper for coal power plants, gas power plants. But uh, we actually now move into the next phase. We actually also need to uh, maintain uh, environmental criteria for the renewable industry. They don't have a black check. They actually also have to uh, follow requirements in terms of sustainability, uh, in terms of product design, in terms of recycling, in terms of what materials they actually need and build in in their product design. But the other thing is, if they're in planning mode to put together these deep-sea caterpillars, mm. deep-sea mining is going to happen, isn't it? It's not clear. It depends on, uh, also on the world market price. The world market price for copper and for other resources uh, is uh, quite low right now, so it's, it would not be economic to do deep-sea mining. It is a speculation of a possible boom and that's what drives some technology companies to uh, develop those technologies. It's not a mass technology, and it's not in daily newspapers or so. It's, uh, nobody talks about it. Uh, but it's happening, uh, and if it's happening, then we actually need to act and uh, need to set criteria. Because when you talk with experts about deep-sea mining, they are so locked in their own issue, they are really care about deep-sea mining, they know everything, but they actually don't really see the connections to, for example, renewables, and we put it in a context saying, why are you actually doing this? Why do you want to do deep-sea mining? And you rather should focus with those deep-sea machines for research 
and uh, look for what's what's down there. Maybe we can actually find creatures which are far more helpful uh, for future technology developments than than the resource themselves. Dr. Sven Tesker, Research Principal from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. Did you go to the Olympics in 2000? I, well, actually, I did, as I was recently (laughs) told by my father... So I, I was five in 2000 yeah. and my dad lives in South Africa and he came over for a trip in the year 2000 and my dad's a sailor. He sails Hobie 16s, which is pretty niche. You'd have to Google what that is if you don't know. No idea. Exactly. But it's boats. <laughs> and so apparently he took me to some lookout over the water and made like made it seem like it was some fun daughter-father outing and bonding time in the park when in reality he had just seated himself so he could watch the the game take oh place below. God. I know. My dad was <laughs> taking advantage of his daughter living in Sydney to come see the games. But yeah, I have no memory of that. I went to the Paralympics, oh. which happens around the same time. And we went on a school excursion. And I remember the teacher telling me this city was built for the Olympic Games before there was just nothing here. It was like barren, gross land. <laughs> but we built this Olympic Park stadium city essentially so that we could host the games and i look back at that now and i'm like how much would it have cost to build a new city here in australia in sydney to host something that lasts for like a couple of weeks and so i wanted to kind of explore that further where is the tie-in with sustainability and the olympic games so i spoke to stephen frawley he's from the australian center for olympic studies at the university of technology sydney And my first question was, are the Olympics innately unsustainable? Probably. Probably. If we look at sustainability in real black and white terms, I think highly unsustainable. Very few of the events actually generate a profit. One of the only events in recent history that has made a profit was the Los Angeles Olympics, and that was based on the fact that they didn't spend a lot of money building stuff they already used the stuff that they had which was quite smart where like uh, what did they already have in place well they had the the big main stadium and they were using a lot of the infrastructure that was already in LA at the time it was very much a uh, a no frills olympics and it was done by a private organizers and there wasn't a lot of government investment but since that time that model really hasn't been used and a lot of the model, or the, the main model from now, is just the economic support and the financial uh, investment of governments. In the effort to generate that revenue that they want to acquire from these events. Yes. How much money does it cost to run an Olympic Games? Yeah, good question. Uh, if we go back to Sydney, we're looking at around that 6 to $9 billion mark. If we go to uh, Beijing in 2008... This is speculation, but they were investing anywhere between 40 and 60 billion US dollars. Could have actually been higher than that. I don't think London was anywhere near that amount, but that Beijing figure gives you an idea of what can be spent if you've got the resources. I think this is where the whole sustainability question comes in. Is there really a need for that level of expenditure? You know, that that just seems ridiculous to me. How is Rio going? Uh, in terms of Brazil, again, the uh, and Rio, the, the figures are unclear at this point in time. But 
I'd be staggered if they're not spending anywhere around the 20 to $30 billion mark. But I don't think there's been a Games that's had more negative publicity than Rio. The Zika virus being a, a key element and also issues around water pollution and uh, the impact that pollution will have on certain events like triathlon, um, sailing, for instance, uh, rowing, canoeing. I think this comes back to the International Olympic Committee. That's the owner of the event. These governing bodies have been giving or awarding through a bidding process these events to cities that really aren't capable of holding them. And South Africa, for instance, in 2010 hosted the, the Football World Cup. And when we talk about sustainability, that we go and look at 10 brand new venues that were built a lot of them very rarely used, massive amounts of money spent on those venues, highly unsustainable, but the consequences for the local population and the financial consequences for that uh, country over the next five to ten years uh, will be significant. Which will include what? Well, you know, in the investments in a lot of permanent venues. Whilst there is some temporary overlay that is being built, it seems to me as an outsider, a lot of the venues that they're building are permanent structures. A lot of the the real sustainability can come out of the Olympic and Paralympic movement is by using a lot more temporary stadiums or temporary components to stadiums that you can put up and pull down. And I think this has been the experience with one of the things that London did really well so that that overlay could stay for both the Olympics and Paralympics, then it's taken down. A downside to that is, well, what is the memory that is left? So, so in some ways you might have this massive stadium that brings back a lot of memories. It may never be used, but it's part of that, that, that uh, social memory. So it's a, a balancing act. What do you want left to remain so people can remember, well, we were part of this. It's funny because the main thing that I remember back from the Olympics is Kathy Freeman winning her race. And there's so much, I guess, social and uh, nostalgic attachment to that moment in Australian history. Exactly. I thought it was a, a really great time in Sydney's history and probably the country's history in terms that there were, it was a very friendly atmosphere. Uh, the volunteer community that worked on those games was so engaging with uh, both the local and international uh, visitors. Often in these discussions, we forget about the Paralympics. And again, the Paralympics was a a, a really joyful occasion and a a true festival of sport. And the fact that we were able to get so many um, school kids, particularly primary school kids, to those events. And also a lot of the marketing was done at the senior population, uh, people that were retired at the time. That was also great to watch. Comparing the Paralympics and the Olympics, how do the sustainability footprints compare? It's, this is a good question, and I, I'd probably argue that the fact that the Paralympics is now running in parallel to the Olympics, and this has only been relatively in recent times, I think uh, the fact that now the Olympic Games is almost a 60-day sport festival, which includes the Paralympics, means that you're able to reuse that infrastructure and, and or use the workforce that was there. So the fact that you're getting sort of double the bang for your buck, I think, makes it a bit more sustainable. Well, that's like what they're doing with the Aquatic Centre in Sydney Olympic Park. That's right. Now, the, the Aquatic Centre, they have, I think it's like 1.5 million people go through it. They struggle to generate a profit, but they've maximised every single bit of space in that. 
They've got kids learn to swim. They've got the leisure side, the recreational side. They're almost an exemplar in how you try and maximise community benefit from an Olympic venue. It's very multi-purpose. It's not only elite use. There's a lot of community benefit. There's a lot of learn to swim. So, Because I, I had a couple of birthdays at the Aquatic Centre. See, there you go. You're, you're an example of a sustainable young man. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Mum and Dad. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Stephen Frawley from the Australian Centre for Olympic Studies at the University of Technology Sydney Business School. How would you feel if your house, your street, your entire town was powered by just one cable? And on top of that, you live on an island, and that cable comes from the mainland. So if the cable breaks, there's a chance you might not have any electricity. How would that make you feel? Well, firstly, that sounds expensive, but I guess it would also be kind of dodgy. Mm. What happens if it breaks? Am I completely blacked out? Do I have a generator? Well, at the moment, this is the case for Kangaroo Island in terms of the entire island is powered by one undersea cable which stretches for about 15 kilometres or so and goes out to the island. They do perhaps have other technologies to work in hand with powering the island, but this is the one coming from the electrical grid from South Australia. So this is where they get the vast majority of their power. But what's interesting at the moment is the island community is contemplating turning to 100% renewable energy. It's also getting up to the same time where the cable is at, I think, the end of its life. So they either need to get a new one or they need to reevaluate the whole energy power uh, complex situation that's unfolding. So Chris Dunstan is a research director from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. And I spoke to him about Kangaroo Island, which has a lot of supposed natural renewable energy benefits. And he says the most interesting part isn't how the system would work, but more the politics of power that would unravel if they were to go to renewables. For example, at the moment, if you're a a consumer on Kangaroo Island, you can choose who you buy your electricity from, which um, retailer. If the cable was no longer there, then you wouldn't be able to participate in the national electricity market. So the only supply would be the supply from the island. And then that raises questions of, well, if the only supply is from the people who generate on the island, how do we ensure that they don't abuse their market power of being the dominant supplier of power on the island. How do you balance power between consumers and uh, the providers? And this is an issue that has been addressed in uh, similar situations overseas. And often what happens is that the community says, well, we don't have a a market to put discipline on supply, uh, but let's uh, engage in community building. So let's perhaps invest in a community energy supply system where the people who supply the power are also the same people who consume it. So essentially they could take over and then govern the power market in Kangaroo Island? Uh, Yeah, they could become the Kangaroo Island energy market and uh, uh, run their own own show. But uh, given that you've got the network there, which would presumably still be run by South Australia Power Networks, and you'd have probably a range of different uh, generation sources 
uh, it would make for a very interesting set of solutions in terms of the governance. It's like a whole another level of power politics, really. Uh, yes, but it could also be uh, an opportunity for a uh, sort of community renaissance in terms of people working together to solve problems uh, collectively on the island. What direction do the community want to go in? Uh, I don't want to speak for the island, but I've certainly spoken to some of the people who do represent uh, the community of Kangaroo Island, and what I'm hearing is that they've got a few priorities. Probably number one is they want to have uh, reliable electricity supply, so that that's a given. They need to have a supply that is at least as reliable as the current supply and preferably even more reliable. It seems quite scary to me that a whole island is powered by one cable. What would happen if that cable were to snap or to stop working? Would everybody just run out of power? Well, it would be a big problem, and we can see the sort of problem that it becomes by looking at what has happened in Tasmania earlier this year when uh, they started to run out of capacity from their uh, hydroelectric scheme uh, and the cable uh, effectively failed between uh, the mainland and Tasmania. So what would happen uh, without the cable is they'd have to rely on their backup generation. Uh, they do have about 8 megawatts of standby diesel generation on the island, but it's um, very expensive to run. It would cost over a million dollars a year to provide uh, diesel. That's not a particularly clean source. And because the diesel generators are not really set up to run uh, long hours, that could actually lead to, to blackouts, uh, which could have a really devastating impact on the community and their local industry, uh, and in particular tourism. So the South Australian Power Network is reassessing how Kangaroo Island is going to be powered, because we're at that point where the cable needs to be changed, because it was only meant to last about 30 years or so. But the next thing the Power Network has posed is another cable, which will be attached to a grid on mainland South Australia. But doesn't that seem like a step backwards, seeing as we've already realised the full potential of renewable energy on Kangaroo Island? Well, this is the question we're looking at at the moment. No single technology can meet all of Kangaroo Island supplies and do it cost-effectively. So the mix would include uh, wind energy, because Kangaroo Island has such a fabulous wind energy resource, as anyone who has been there uh, will have noticed. Secondly, uh, solar energy is um, quite affordable these days. Um, Batteries, because wind and solar are a, a variable output supply. And then there's other ways in which we can back that up to create a more reliable system, for example, using bioenergy. How does bioenergy, or how is that done? Uh, Perhaps the most conventional or the simplest way of doing it is to harvest the timber and turn it into an easily usable fuel by chipping it and then feeding it into a boiler to uh, create steam and put that steam through a turbine exactly the same way that a coal or a gas-fired turbine, uh, a steam turbine, would operate. People would obviously, from the point of view of Kangaroo Island, be concerned and make sure that was sustainable, but provided it's based on plantations that have been established for the purpose and that are replanted, you can effectively have a zero-carbon supply of electricity from bioenergy in that form. With all these alternatives, would that then work alongside having a electrical cable still attached to the island? Because with all these renewable, clean energy means being generated on the island, 
then that being fed back into the grid and taken back to the mainland. Is is that the most feasible option? In principle, uh, you could certainly provide all of the needs of the island without relying on the cable. It then becomes a question of what are the economics of doing that. As I said, the design life of the existing cable runs out to 2023, so no one's proposing to actually cut that cable. It's really what can we do to ensure that there's reliable supply in the event of a failure of that cable. But in the longer term, it's actually possible that you would uh, want to have a cable there not just as a backup for the island, but as a, a way of exporting renewable energy from the island back onto the mainland. It would depend on how much wind energy the community wants to have established on the island. Chris Dunstan, Research Director from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Nina Kopel. See you next week. Thank you.